Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthcare Whisperer Show. My name is Hari Kalsa, and I'm your host. I'm a nurse practitioner and owner and president of Healthcare Whisperer. And Healthcare Whisperer is a healthcare navigation and patient advocacy company. You can follow me on Twitter at HARIK108 or on Facebook at healthcarewhisperer.com. You can also visit my blog at healthcarewhisperer.com. Now, the purpose of the show is to provide information and tips on how to better navigate the healthcare system. And boy, do I know how daunting and cumbersome that can be. If you have any questions during the show, please call in at 805-830-8363. And first, I want to wish everybody a Happy New Year. May this year be a good one for everyone. I also want to send my love and prayers out to all the Sandy Hook families. You are in my prayers. My show today is so exciting because I have Howard Block care coordinator and patient advocate extraordinaire. He works with uh, people with dementia and Alzheimer, and he is just the most amazing caregiver, care coordinator I think I've ever met. Um, I feel really lucky to have worked with him because he keeps me laughing, and while I'm laughing, he keeps me focused. And that often is sometimes a hard combination for me. He's been working with Alzheimer's patients, which I think, according to his resume, is 1994. And when I asked him what he wanted to talk about, he said, eh, the same way to deal with dementia. So without further ado, it's time to bring Howard on so we can get started and just talk about everything about dementia. So, Howard, are you there? I'm here. Happy New Year, Hari. Happy New Year to you. So great that you could come on the show because it's going to be a wonderful show, I'm sure. Well, great for me, too. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you and working with you as well. And all the nice things you said about me, I can echo right back to you. Oh, good. Oh, good. As long as you can keep me laughing, um, um, you can stay on the show all, for the whole time. All right, hour, okay. I can, I'll okay, try good. to keep you laughing. But how about compliments? Okay, Okay. Compliments won't work. All right. Well, we can go with them. We we, okay. we can have a, a like a timeout. We can just compliment each other. Okay. Okay. You oh, can go first, okay. but let's wait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I just want to tell everyone that Howard and I have a uh, client that we work together with. That's how we got started, and it's been really insightful for me to work with someone of his expertise. So, Howard, why don't you tell us how you a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I didn't really have a conventional background in anything medical or Alzheimer's or dementia-related. I started as a musician, a classical pianist, um, and that's what I thought my career was going to be. And it started out that way. And as always in life, things happen, and fate gets in the way and redirects, at least in my case, me, um, in a different way. Uh, My paternal grandmother had Alzheimer's disease for a very, very long time. And although I wasn't particularly close with her, uh, I saw the devastation it it wrecked and and sort of destroyed my father's family. She was not that old when she was diagnosed. She probably was in her late 70s when it was discovered. I don't know if diagnosed uh, was was correct at that point. And she lived to be 101. Oh, that's a long time. It was a very long time, and she uh. um, started out, and this is before, this is probably in the 70s. Um, there was really no diagnostic center, although she lived in New York, so it was just assumed that she had Alzheimer's disease, but never proven. She started out with quite a bit of money. Um, she ended up in a nursing home on Medicaid for a number of years, and I saw her go from a very elegant uh wonderful person to she remained an elegant wonderful person but she was basically you know non-functional non-verbal and it was horrible because uh there were no there were no people like us around um at that point and my father and my aunt with the best of intentions spent all of her money on her care as they should have and um there was no estate planning there was no nothing done um, because there was no one there to help them. 
and they weren't stupid, but they weren't, you know, they hadn't gone through it before. And until you go through it the first time, you really don't know what you're doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And as I saw that happen, I thought, well, there's got to be, there's got to be a better way than this. So that's how I sort of started doing this, and it sort of just grew into to a career. And while there's a lot of sadness and horror associated with it, there's a lot of joy and, and satisfaction. Right, right. So, so back in the seventies, did they even call it Alzheimer's back then, or they just said, I mean, was was that was that a di- actual diagnosis back then? Well, it was a diagnosis, but no one no one got it. I mean, mm-hmm. they first it was first identified by a doctor named Alzheimer, and I think nineteen eight or nineteen seven. But after he died, you know, there really was no one who was officially diagnosed. My grandmother probably wasn't told or we weren't told that she had Alzheimer's disease until she was probably 95 or 94. I mean, we certainly knew she was demented, but it was treated more as a mental illness. And she was mentally quite healthy all along. Her memory just was totally eroded. So and that's really interesting. She was diagnosed more with a mental health issue, like a psychiatric diagnosis? Yeah. Or dementia? Oh, my goodness. Oh, that must have been very difficult because you probably had difficulty getting the care. Well, it was very difficult. And my other grandmother, who really was mentally ill, (laughs) had a mental (laughs) had had a mental illness diagnosis, which was for which was real. I mean, she Uh was a paranoid schizophrenic. And when I looked at the two who were about the same age, um, I thought, well, okay, one is obviously mentally ill, and the other one is is very well adjusted and always was, and Uh she just couldn't remember things. But otherwise, she was fine. So I thought, well, something's wow. wrong with this picture. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So you're. So you found yourself involved. Were, were you helping out with your father? Any sort of like, or you just watched the process from the sidelines, heartbroken? Or um, I, I was involved. When I, they lived in New York. I lived in Boston at the time. Actually, I lived mm-hmm. in Vienna at the time. Um, when mm-hmm. I returned oh, okay. to even farther. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Where I couldn't do much washing. Uh, when I moved back to Boston, I still was, I mean, I was close enough to visit frequently, but I wasn't close enough to do hands-on stuff. And I remember when she was living at home in the house she'd lived in for 50 years with caregivers, um, I remember the, the harbinger for me was I stayed overnight one night. And in the morning, she she knew who I was, but she had no idea that I'd been there the night, the day before and wanted to know right. how I got into the house so early in the morning, and mm-hmm. then asked me at least 25 times in the morning, do I want lemon in with my tea or milk with my tea? And she, uh, I hate tea and always have. She always knew that. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. after the first 10 times of saying, no, thank you, I don't like tea, no, thank you, Nana, I don't like tea, I realized, well, that's getting me nowhere, so I said, lemon. <laughs> so she gave me a cup of tea with lemon. <laughs> <laughs> which I spilled down the drain when she wasn't looking, and I realized, well, this is not the grandmother I knew and loved. Right, so that was like, that. would you say that was kind of like your turning point? Like you yes, that was an realized, aha moment. Yeah, aha, and that was sort of an aha moment for your life almost. It was, and I think the thing it taught me more than anything else, which is something I think I've sort of, I try to keep in the back of my mind all the time, is it's far easier to say, yes, I want tea with lemon than it is to say, no, I don't like it, to someone who can't remember. I'm just going to ask you again anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um so you you had this moment and and you you sort of it went around in your brain. You realized, I mean, this was very close to you and it really impacted you that you saw the actually the pain and suffering of your family of, you know, your you yeah, I guess your grandmother didn't really know it, but you saw it happening in the nursing home. So well, no, actually, just... when she was still living at home, she knew some, She knew she was losing her memory oh, very clearly. Okay. She still had insight, which made it even more painful because she would say, what's wrong with me? I can't remember anything. And then one of her caregivers mm-hmm. who'd been living, a living caregiver for probably 10 years, one morning, poor, her name was Audrey, poor Audrey, um, woke up mm-hmm. one morning and my grandmother called the police because there was a strange woman in the house. Oh. Now, she wasn't strange. She'd been living there for 10 years. I mean, nothing yeah. happened except the police did show up, and it was horrible for Audrey, who, mm-hmm. bless her heart, didn't quit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She understood what was going on. Yeah, she understood what was going on, and she, you know, she felt awful about it, as did my grandmother, but it was when she realized what had happened. 
But anyway, I, I cut you off. You were talking about it once, and then no, home. no, no. That's you can cut me off anytime. It's fine. Okay. That's great. To, I mean, that's that. Like that little story. Well, it's not little, but the police calling is like almost a classic kind of story. I mean, that happens in Alzheimer's. Oh, all the time. Forget. And you know, they they start at doing things that are so outside their personality and at paranoia or not or something, and it just throws everybody off kilter. Right, and I mean, I've seen that happen millions of times since that, but the first time you see it, especially when it's someone who mm-hmm. you've known all your life, mm-hmm. um, it's mm-hmm. shocking, horrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think and that so, thing- Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say, so I just want to, like, from that moment, how did you how did you figure out that that um, because you actually started, you know, like it says here, ninety four is kind of when you started doing ninety three, ninety four. So, like, how how did you decide? How did you know how to do this? I mean, because there's a lot of people out there who have those moments, but they don't know what to do. How did they? They say, well, how can I give back or how can I help? How did you sort of navigate or traverse getting involved in this and making you know a successful way, a successful career and way of life for you? Well, it wasn't easy or simple. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a piano teacher and a pianist still here. I was volunteering at the Alzheimer's <laughs> Association, um, uh-huh. working on the helpline to begin with. And the phone calls that would come in, I mean, there wasn't all that much training, but sufficient. And uh, I would be getting phone calls from people who were in situations similar to ones I was in or my family had been in. And... After you've heard the same, it's not the same story constantly, but the same sort of scenario over and over and over again, uh, one figures mm-hmm. out fast enough, one hopes one figures out quickly enough, that there's not one answer that's right, but certainly agreeing and not fighting and trying to enter the person's reality rather than make them enter yours works, mm-hmm. and the other nothing else really does. So although it's, you know... It requires an amount of uh, attitude adjustment or thinking adjustment, or as someone once, a client of mine, daughter once pointed out to me, I was the best liar she'd ever met. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, in real life, I don't think that's a compliment, but when you're dealing with someone whose sense of reality is totally altered, why say, if they're saying, I want to see my mother, and they think their mother is still alive even though they're 98, what's the point of telling them their mother is dead when it's the first time they've heard it for them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know I have a client who I um, take to, um, you know, has Alzheimer's, and we have to take her to a, a, a clinic once a month for uh, some one of her chronic illnesses. And um, she always says, well, where's my ride? Where's my ride? And I said, well, you're, you know, I tell her, your limo's coming back for you. Oh, okay. You know, it's just a chair ambulance you know, chair car, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, you know, from the nursing home. But for her, it makes her feel, because she used to travel in limousines, you know, that was part of her life. And um, so she, oh, okay, my limousine's coming. And then she says, well, where am I going? I, 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 well, you're going back. She decided to call the nursing home her apartment. So I say, you're going back to your apartment in your limo. Okay, good. You know, but it's not any of the truth there, but it makes sense to her. Absolutely, and the consequences of saying the absolute truth, well, you're not really going in a limousine, you're going in a, a chair car or an ambulance back to your nursing home. I mean, what what will you accomplish except being right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and being right is not really the, what this is about. It's making the person feel better. Right, exactly. And, it, and also it keeps that people from... With Alzheimer's, one thing we see a lot is the agitation. I mean, you never know. If someone gets agitated, then you have to sort of bring bring them down. You know, you have to get them unagitated or, you know, ration, not rational, but sort of calm down again. So it's better just to, you know, tell them, yeah, okay, yeah, our apartment, we're going to your apartment in the limousine. No problem. And then I, at the Alzheimer's Association, to continue with my saga, sad or Please. happy as it may be, um, I did a lot of training for healthcare workers and people who were dealing with people who may be even physicians who were highly skilled in their profession but had no idea how to deal with a demented patient. And there were so many horror stories I'd heard about, you know, people, you know, great cardiologists uh, seeing a patient that was that had fairly pronounced dementia and telling them things, you know, the factual things about their heart, fine, but then saying, you know, the person would say, well, I'm going to go home and tell my mother this, and then the cardiologist would say, no, your mother's dead. 
and then they'd burst into hysteria, saying, no one ever told me that before. And each time <laughs> they hear it is, is the first time. So, I mean, I thought, well, what's the point of this visit? And right. then I went into nursing homes a lot of times as con- behavioral consultants. And, I mean, the things that uh, that I saw, it's not the fault of the nursing home or individuals, but most people don't naturally think this way. I didn't either, and I'm sure you never did either. But, I mean, it's just you you have to evolve into it. Telling someone... First of all, we all have pasts, and the past the past informs our present, and if we're unable to express what we really want it's, and something comes out that seems squirrely, it's not necessarily that it's so bizarre. It's just that, you know, I mean, I remember doing a training once. One of the things I always ask people is, what's something about yourself that, that you don't, that no one knows? And mm-hmm. usually it's something silly like I only sleep with the left sock, my left sock on. I don't sleep with the right sock on. Nobody knows that. Well, mm-hmm. if you're if you're 85 years old and in a nursing home and you still want to sleep with one sock on, as you always have, and the staff decides it's not right, you have to sleep with two socks on. Guess what they're going to mm-hmm. get? Resistance and fighting. Right, right, right. Um, right in right. fact, in a more outrageous. Uh, story um there was i was called into a nurse a nameless nursing home uh, that had a very um tall male resident big tall um mm-hmm. who'd been a judge mm-hmm. and he was always trying to put on the tiny clothes that the women most of the other residents in the unit were women mm-hmm. and um the nursing home assumed that he was uh that he was trying to put on judicial robes because dresses were uh-huh. closer to judicial robes than anything else. Well, they didn't do much homework, and I did, and it turned out he was a transvestite and always was. Mm. Um, wow. So there was an easy solution to that, not so conventional. Get him some dresses. Yeah. <laughs> right. His family got him some dresses, big dresses, and he didn't run around the nursing home in the big dresses because he looked just too... Uh, too peculiar. Um, but what they did do is, he luckily, he had some amount of money. They rented a limousine with tinted windows. He went out in a dress once a week in the limousine. He was very happy. No one could see him. He could see everybody else. He had his, you know, his moments, his afternoon of fun, and he stopped. The behavior just stopped. Wow. Wow. So, so is that something that you sort of um, really worked on creating? Because that's and working with nursing homes to get people to understand, to look into someone's past, yes. to look at who they are. Because it seems, I mean, that recently I hear people mentioning that more. And it wasn't in the you know the, the years before when I would hear people say, well, let's look at their past. So that, that's something that you kind of evolved with yourself, right, and taught. Pretty much. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, wow. everyone, no one's born with Alzheimer's disease or dementia. I right. mean, people are right. born, you know, the way they're born, and they develop the way they develop, and they have a life. And sometimes, sadly, at 58 or 60, they develop. I mean, that's just tragic beyond belief. But, I mean, however they live their life prior to that is generally going to be the way they're going to want to continue to live their life. And if they're unable to explain, well, I always was afraid of I don't know what, of uh, frogs, um, and the nursing, the place they're living in has an aquarium with a frog in it, and they run and they you know run the other way every time they see it. I mean, there's a reason they just can't tell you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and sometimes the families don't know, but sometimes right. they do. And sometimes they're ashamed, or they don't want to tell, and or no one no one bothers to ask them. Mm-hmm. 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 And generally, what I like to do is ask every stupid question on earth that I can think of. They're not stupid. I mean, the, the questions may be stupid, but the, the information isn't. And then say, tell me everything you can tell me about so-and-so that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, and they, so, so you said, I, I, so how do people respond to that? Does it take you a while to pull it out of them? Or, like, are they just like, oh, well, let me tell you, know, they're willing? I mean, families can be difficult. Yes, they certainly can. I think some <laughs> families are very willing, and some families are very yeah. reticent, and some people don't have families. I remember another right, situation. Right. There was a guy in a nursing home in northern Massachusetts who um, they were, he would never take a shower. He broke two mm-hmm. aides' arms when they were trying to shower him. Uh-huh. And now he he lived alone in a rather you know primitive kind of condition all of his life. Um, 
And when I, when I did track down family members, they said he never took a bath or a shower in his life. His idea of taking a bath was going in the lake, no matter how cold it was, with a bar of soap. Wow. So they didn't bring him to a lake, but instead of saying, I've forgotten his name, and I wouldn't say it even if I remembered it, but, you know, mm-hmm. let's say Howard, let's take, let's take a shower or let's take a bath, they'd say, Howard, let's go to the lake, and he'd go perfectly happily, go in the bathtub, wash himself or allow them to wash him, and there was never a problem. It just was changing the word. Wow. I'm, I'm like, I, I'm very excited about you talking about this because I see how this is so important to find out what it is to use a different word. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about a client that I, I, I'm already thinking, I haven't asked that yet because I just sort of got involved with this new client. And there, it's, it's, it's the I'm not getting in the shower routine or I'm not letting you change my bandage. And, you know, ra- you know, and I've sort of been like just watching and now I realize I just have to ask, what is it? You have to find out. You know, what is it that this person doesn't like about it or what's different about the shower? You know, maybe she take maybe she needs to take it at six in the morning or something, you know. Right. I don't or know. Or maybe she just took maybe she just took a bath too. I mean there's there's all kinds of Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that this is like so I mean, and there's so many little things. I mean, if you identify the behavior that's causing agitation or resistance then you just have to sort of you're like kind of like a, a detective you've got to figure out what it is that's the like what neurons are not firing and how to how to change the language right and or i even, mean i think uh, go ahead yes. no no, no, no i'm no. also thinking sometimes just the physical environment like maybe the chairs are in the wrong place i mean have you ever run across that also constantly and what i find most frequently is there are a lot of mirrors in the bathroom and if a person is cognitively impaired, they have no idea what they really look like. And they look in the mirror in the bathroom, and there's a naked old lady or a naked old man in there with them. And their image of themselves <laughs> is, you know, a 25-year-old attractive right, person. Right. So there's this right. old hag in the, staring at them <laughs> who just happens to be themselves. And I remember, actually, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's poignant. My mother, who did not have any kind of dementia, I remember when she was about 80, she was in fabulous shape. We were walking down Fifth Avenue in New York. We were walking down down Fifth Avenue, and there was a store. I can't remember what the store, which store it was. Instead of having a, a, a glass panes, had mirrors. So my mother just took a quick glance into the um, into the window and said, uh, "My God, look at that old bag in there." And then Aww. then I looked, and it was a mirror. <laughs> so then she said, "Oh my God, that's me." <laughs> And oh, she didn't dear. look like an old bag, but I mean, she certainly, uh-huh. you know, didn't. She looked to me like she had always looked, but to her, I mean, she wasn't expecting uh-huh. uh, to see a reflection. She was, and she was always one, not unlike her son, to you know make a nasty comment. So, she did. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so there it was. Oh my. There it was an old oh. bag with her fat son. <laughs> I don't think so. So, wow, I, I'm, you know, I just want to tell for those people who are listening and, and working, because I've gotten a few emails today that, you know, a lot of people are excited about hearing this. And, you know, this is, I don't know, this is really good information for advocates and caregiver, care coordinators to really look at the whole picture and work with, a, you know, particularly nursing homes or can just ignore all those issues. I mean, some of them are better, but, you know, they can ignore those issues. But um. And it, this is actually, I think, in many ways more important than anything else mm-hmm. because it's, it's the telling. essence of the person. I mean, you know, if they get their pills, they get their pills. I'm mm-hmm. not saying they shouldn't get their pills, but, I mean, if the care, if there's resistance to all care or some portion of care, there's usually a reason for it. Maybe it's not a solvable reason, but frequently it is. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right, right. I remember um, I had a someone who wouldn't take a shower, and the director of the unit, it was a memory unit, uh, said, well, I came down with chocolate, and, and she was fine after that, got right in the shower. And I thought, every time you, I said to her, every time you go to do a shower, or your nurses do, give chocolate, because there's something about, maybe she had a piece of chocolate every time she was in the bathtub or in the shower. You know, yeah, so I remember another situation. In the nursing yeah. home where I was called into, and uh, we had a staff meeting, and it was a guy who wouldn't take a shower. 
And there was one aide who was working there who was very quiet, um, very shy. And someone pointed out that any time she was the only person in the whole nursing home that could succeed in showering him. Mm-hmm. So I so I asked her what she did, and she didn't want to. She didn't want to. She, it wasn't that she didn't want to answer. It's that she was too shy to talk in front of fifty people. But she finally said, in this teeny little voice, "Well, I know he likes opera and he likes hot dogs." So every time I want to have him take a shower, he had a waterproof um, CD player. She'd put an opera CD in, in the bathroom, and give him a hot dog. And he'd go in the shower. Now, I mean, the fact that she figured it out herself was brilliant. The fact that no one else, she shared it with no one else, or no one else even listened to her, was Mm -hmm. criminal. So then I said, okay, this needs to be his care plan. Every day he needs a shower, hot dog and opera. And that was the end of the problem. <laughs> yeah, now, that won't yeah, work for everybody. It, no, no, opera wouldn't work for me. I'll tell you, I would run from the shower. I mean, no, that's it would work I for am. me. The hot dog, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> the hot dog won't work either. But, um, but no, it's it's something for everybody, and that's the most amazing thing about Alzheimer's is that, it, in a way, in its own way, it's incredibly unique to the individual. And, you know, as care coordinators and, and advocates, you have to really believe that, you know, that it's not just a disease and, they're, you know, people lose their memory and that's it, you know, and they're, you know, it's just like shuffling along. No, there's it's an individual, it's so individual, and that's what, you know, this is all about when you find out what will work for them to stop the resistance. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. You know? Yeah, and yeah, and it's... it's it's not always obvious. In fact, it no, really so, is. So besides that, what other things do you do? Because that's really good. I mean, you say it's not obvious. What other what other ways do you, do you work with nursing homes and families that, to help them understand? Well, I think families a lot of times, including my own, are mired in having things be the way they were. Mm-hmm. It was always like this. It might have been bad, but it was always like this. So it requires a complete sort of change in gear or attitude. Um, And just because so-and-so, you know, always said they they wouldn't do such and such doesn't mean that they really, they were either too ashamed or whatever. And things change. And I think that what we need to sort of accommodate the person with the disease rather than having it, you know, trying to insist, well, they always had, woke up at 7 o'clock and ate, a, ate breakfast with a napkin, with a cloth napkin. I mean, I don't doubt that's true, but that doesn't mean they always wanted to. I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. I had a client once who um, was labeled. She was quite wealthy. She was from an, She had a very elitist sort of family, and I was told by everyone in her family that she was a racist. There could never be a person of color in her house. Never, 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 never. So at the beginning, I believed it um, until I got to know her quite well. And I realized there, there, she was an elitist, but she wasn't a racist. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginning, when I suspected this but wasn't certain, I called the nursing agency because she needed a nurse. Um, she needed a nurse for various reasons. One of, one of the reasons, it didn't have to be a nurse, but it had to be someone who could get her to take a shower because she hadn't taken a shower, I'm not kidding, in two years. So it was not a pleasant sight or smell. And I didn't, I just called this agency and said I needed a nurse, and they gave me a very uh, waspy sounding name. So I was expecting this, you know, sleek, wealthy looking person to show up. And instead mm-hmm. of the door was this enormous black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the client was doing a crossword puzzle, which she still could do in ink, the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle in ink with no problem, even though she couldn't remember to take a shower. And this particular this woman, who I did not know at all, was extraordinarily articulate and smart. So the client first said, what's a four-letter word for blah, blah, blah? She came up with the word right away, and she told, said it's a Latin cognate. All of a sudden, the client was wowed. And then she said, mm-hmm. time to take a shower, Mrs. Blah, blah. And she just went with her. And after oh. the, the nurse left, she said, she's wonderful. Where did you find her? <laughs> and I oh, thought, no, God. that's not a racist. No. If, the, if the woman had come in and not known the crossword puzzle answer, she may have had a little harder time. But uh-huh. it was an assumption that had been made based on no fact. 
Right, right, right. I mean, I wouldn't have known that answer, honestly. Oh, well, I didn't. Yeah, my Latin was never quite that good. <laughs> no, she asked me before, and I said, I don't know. But she already knew me, and she thought I was okay, so, you know, I could fail on one question. But, you know, she I'm sure she was testing me at the beginning, too. Right, right. Luckily, it wasn't so, with Latin. So, it's, right. <laughs> so, assumptions. I mean, the assumptions that we have of people. We have to sort of, as family members, we have to sort of put them aside when things start to change. Right. And that's difficult. That's very difficult for families because even when you show it to them, it can be a long road to get them to really understand it and see it. Absolutely. And sometimes it takes a lot of, not just gentle persuasion, arguing. And right, sometimes, right, right. And sometimes we all have to swallow the fact that we won't succeed, even though we may be right. Right, um, right. But frequently, or not frequently, I say more often than not, if a family sees this working, they may say, I can't believe this is happening, but mm-hmm. they see it's working, so why would they, why fight City Hall? I mean, there's no reason to. Right, and then it actually, actually it's a relief. I mean, families live on sort of the edge of their seats, many of them. What's going to happen next? How am I going to, my mother or father or aunt or uncle or, you know, loved one isn't taking a shower. They're getting worse in the nursing home. It's no better. Why did I put them there? And, you know, you just have to help. Well, you have to help the nursing home, but you also have to help the family to know, well, yeah, nothing's going to be perfect, but you just have to work with the person. Yeah, and I mean, the past, as as I, I can't say enough, the past informs the present. So a person right. who you know, uh, I, you know, behaved in outrageous ways. I mean, I will not. I will not be an easy nursing home patient. Nor will you. <laughs> <laughs> I will be wonderful, Howard. Please. Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope we're in the rooms next to each other. <laughs> well, we're in the same room. <laughs> okay, we can just yak it away. We can talk. Just and, you know, we have to listen to each other. <laughs> right. Right. But, I mean, I think that that's lost in that um, in most facilities or in mo- most environments is that, you know, people who are like-minded, whether they be obnoxious or not, generally do better as, as, as roommates or next-door people or, you know, they'll form a bond more quickly than trying to force it because, well, you know, it's two men and they're both Jewish and they both grew up in Newton. I mean, that's that's really nothing <laughs> if you right, have a right. dementia. Right, right. It's it's fake. It's yeah. It's 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 not real. Yeah, it's superimposed stuff that yeah, is real, but I mean, it's not the essence of the person's being most of the time. So I mean, that's a beautiful thing that you just said. You really, I mean, it's it's like you come into a room. I mean, you have this ability, and and I think it's really a gift to really sense the person's inner being. You know, you sort of hone in, and that's, like, you take away the fluff, and you take away, like, the, the traditional, I mean, yeah, you've trained with Alzheimer's, but you sort of develop this amazing, as you say, the same way to dementia, the same way to care, you know, for people with dementia, because you've, you you do, you see the person, well, you know, as you say, the past informs the present, but you see the person as they are now. Mm-hmm. And how we're going to work with them now? It's not about the illness; it's about what the, the illness has done something to them. But you still see them as the person, right? right. Absolutely. And, and I think that like, some, you know, we also make these assumptions that you know, just because some a couple was married for sixty years, that they love each other. Mm-hmm. I mean. Everyone makes that assumption, and it's usually correct, but sometimes it's not. I, I lead support groups a lot, and I remember once, this, I'll never forget this, and there was a wife who came to a support group. Both the, the wife and the husband were both physicians. He had been in a nursing home for a very long time because he had to be. He was severely impaired. She was still working. Mm-hmm. She came every two weeks. She matter-of-factly told everybody what was going on. She never cried or seemed all that distressed, but, you know, I always assumed, stupid me, that, and everyone else in the group, that, you know, she was, you know, mad. She was, she loved him. And she came one week to tell us he died. So I said all the things one is supposed to say when someone loses someone they love, and, or the things I thought I was supposed to say. And then she said to me, well, what makes you think I loved him? So I said, well, 
I don't know, you were married for 60 years. She said, well, we had to get married because they were both refugees. And she said, uh, it was, it was, we had to get married for just to enter the United States, really. She said, I couldn't stand them. I never liked them for the month before I met him, married him. We never lived together. <laughs> she said, I just did it out of duty. I did it out of duty and because I'm a physician and I felt like as a physician I owe him this kind of courtesy. Wow. So I sat there with my, for once in my life, you know, with not a word to say. <laughs> for a long time. You got time. me on that one. <laughs> and I, I, wow. But, I mean, you can, you know, and I think that it was an incorrect assumption, but the correct assumption, the co- the correct information was she didn't love him, but she still cared about him as a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is quite different. Well, she, right. And she made sure he was well cared for. And she saw him, and, you know, two, three times a week. Mm-hmm. She checked on his care. But there was no, it wasn't out of love. It was out of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so when we talked, I mentioned um, a couple times now that you, you know, at the beginning that you had said, you know, a sane approach to dementia, you know, and uh, so how, in talking about that, what makes, how, how would you describe that? I mean, we've sort of talked about it, you know, looking at people as they are, their being, you know, the sense of being, using different language, but what... What made you come up with that? I mean, it sounds like a great title for a book, actually, and I think it would really help people because so many people are afraid of dementia and Alzheimer's. Most people are. I was, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, well, assuming that I'm sane, or the, <laughs> <laughs> which okay, may we'll be an incorrect there. assumption, but let's just start with that as a, as, as a given. Um uh-huh. I think that many of us, including myself at the early on, and even still, um, we get so carried away by the distress or the the our our own uncomfortableness with what's going on with this person who we love, care about, or attached to, whatever, um, that we so much want it to be the way it was that it makes us behave in irrational ways, or it can. And I think the thing most that's most important about dementia care, no matter who it's being delivered to. Um, is to look at with some. Oh, there's my qualis interruptus. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, to look at it through sort of sane eyes and say, well, this is not happening to me. My world is not altered. This other person's world is altered, and I'm going to just, you know, enter their world when I'm with them and when I have to think about them, which could be constantly. But then. I'm going to go back to being me and act in the world the way I've always acted and not be hysterical because, you know, I went in to visit my father and he was he was wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that one should be happy about that, but facilities have, well, even private care. I mean, there's a limit. And if, someone who's in, if someone's incontinent, you can change them at 2 o'clock and at 2.01 they can be wet again. Right. So that's not neglect. That's just mm-hmm. not having somebody on the spot every second. Mm-hmm. Or or even mm-hmm. if there is someone on the spot, they can only change someone so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, I'm not, there, there, there's a, a way where it goes over the edge where it's abuse and neglect, but I'm talking about just sort of in the normal day, daily occurrences. Um, mm-hmm. Remain sane and to scream and yell and get hysterical about it when mm-hmm. it's when you don't know that it hasn't been more than a minute or two minutes is, is crazy. Um and it's it's hard sometimes to think that quickly or get into that mindset saying, well, you know, when I go to visit Howard, um, who knows what I'm going to find? Um, and look at it as sort of not, not, not fun necessarily, but a challenge, a challenge to you or to mm-hmm. oneself rather than, than you know, I'm going to find something wrong with this care. Mm-hmm. And even if and the people who want to, you know, say, well, I'm going to do this alone at home because only I can care for so and so. It's admirable to try, but if you yourself, if the caregiver themselves is elderly, um, it's, it generally doesn't work. I don't know anyone that can do this kind of 24/7 care themselves if they're 85 themselves for very long. And a lot of times, you know, it's it's a stubborn spouse who insists on it, or sometimes it's 
you know, stubborn children that are just, uh, you know, well, that they got married for better or for worse. So too bad. And I think, you know, if if the vows were for better or for worse, but if you get Alzheimer's, you, I, I just, you know, I allow you to break the vows, then it's okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's better for worse, but if you get Alzheimer's, get help. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right, because I do, and I and and the other side of it is whoever is caring is getting worn down, worn down, because it's a twenty four seven job. Yeah. With people with Alzheimer's, people. I mean, what a lot of people understand that at night, often people. There's no time. Alzheimer's patients often don't understand time, and that's why a lot of times we see people medicated, because they'll get up in the middle of the night and start wandering. And if you're there home alone, uh, you or use the caregiver, you know, one other person at home with them, like a spouse, they are also up then, mm-hmm. you know, making sure they don't go outside, figure out how to undo the locks, which I've seen people do, and then go outside, even at... Um, <laughs> I've seen it at uh, nursing homes where somehow the person figured it out, or right. and there they were walking down the road, you know. And if we're lucky, we find them before they're too far, you know, or they're found, uh, and the police don't have to get called. But you know, they're and sometimes not, they're never they're, found. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not that they're trying to break out; they're just doing what they do. They going outside. Right. Going for a walk. Outside. Yeah, that's what they do. You know, let's go for a walk. You know, so... And I think the uh, story about that, I mean, uh, there's lots of stories about that, but I'll tell you one also in a support group. Uh, It was a husband and wife. The husband had Alzheimer's. They were not that old. They were in their mid mid to late 70s. The wife decided, they lived in Connecticut. They decided to relocate to Boston because they had two children who lived in the area. And the wife was determined to do it herself. You know, he was a great husband, which I don't doubt. She was a great wife. I don't doubt that either. And she'd come to the support group every two weeks and looked worse. And He looked great. They lived near me, so I <laughs> saw him a lot. But she looked worse and worse and worse and worse for the reasons you just said. You know, she was uh, He was up all night, so was she. Um, and uh, after several years of this, you know, and everyone, including her children, you've got to get help, you've got to get help, you've got to get help. The only help she would even allow would be if one of her kids came over and – would visit for a while. She'd take a nap for an hour, which is hardly a break. Um, and after uh, he, he died, and then she said, well, I've been through everything. Now I can start living my life again because I'm not that old. And she died two weeks later of exhaustion. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, you know, she, what did she accomplish except she killed herself? Right, right, because it will. It's so, I mean, it, it, you you don't get out. You don't socialize. You're in, you're always on edge and stressed. We can't even imagine the level of stress. I see it in a caregiver's eyes, and I'm sure you do too. Mm-hmm. You know, as and and you look at people. And I'm always telling caregivers, you you know, families, you have to have help. And if you know, if not, you have to have somebody come over so you can go out. You know, you have to do something else. You can't just be home, and it's very hard to convince people, especially if they're still at home, to go out. And usually it's an event that often will cause people to make that change, you know, like they wander out and and they can't be found and the police hunt, you know, the police have to find them if they can be found, you know, or they are so agitated at night they break something or fall down, you know, so... It becomes too much for, and especially the elderly, you know, if the spouse is old. It, it, it's very difficult. And, and that's why you and I always, we recommend frequently to get AIDS in the home. You know, and, and I, I guess you must see it all the time, especially with older clients. I just don't want anybody else in my house. Yeah, you know, I want as my you privacy. mentioned in that story. Yeah, yeah, my privacy. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, I, sometimes I'd like, I, I just want to roll my eyes and shake him and say, but you're killing yourself. Let yeah. me help here. You can, you'll, you'll die in privacy, but <laughs> that's yeah, right. uh, that's that's not a win. Um, and I also think because our healthcare system is so messed up in so many fundamental mm-hmm. ways that some people just can't afford to, to pay for help. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Or they think they can't, can. or they feel like they need yeah. to save save their money for a rainy day. Well, I want to say it's raining now. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's raining. Really- 
It's raining, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the saddest stories I ever heard was I got this call from a woman, and she said to me, she was in her 40s, and she had early-onset Alzheimer's. She'd been diagnosed. Um, and she wanted to know if I had, you know, she could get no care. She could get no insurance care because they only deal with Alzheimer's if you're, um, uh, you know, if you if you're over 65, like the mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, a lot of the associations and the people who give the money, and so she was having and she she was having a very difficult time getting support, and the, she had a family, you know, had three kids. Her husband was in the military, and it was, I mean, it was it was very difficult to her, and she, you know, she. Asked me, and I gave her, you know, I just gave her some information. And about five minutes later, her oldest son called me back. I think he was like 17. And he said, I know you just talked to my mother, but she didn't remember anything that you said. And she didn't write it down, even though I'd asked her to write it down. But that was so heartbreaking to me because here was a young, young person with Alzheimer's. I mean, it's rare, but it happens. It does. And she, and, and, the, insur- and, and the healthcare system doesn't acknowledge it. You know, they Not don't, at all. a lot of, and so uh, it's very, very difficult. And it was that, that was one of the hardest calls I think I ever had as an advocate. I, I, I kind of held the phone after the son called me and thought, wow, this is not just hard on her, but the family, these kids. Anyway. Yeah, and, it goes, and, and then when it's the middle generation, I remember I had a client who's, um, who was, a, well, she's long dead, but she she taught at Stanford. Her mother, she was in her 40s also. Her students, mm-hmm. she was divorced. Her students were the people who sort of picked up that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Her mother still lived in Boston. Her mother was still working. Her mother was not particularly old. Well, her mother was probably in her 72 or something like that. So she came back here, and her mother ended up taking care of her until she died. Wow. Now, talk about heartbreaking. I mean, you know, her, the mother, the mother who I knew far better than the daughter said, you know, I... You know, I did this once when she was little. Now I'm doing it again. Wow. And I can't imagine what that feels like. Because I can't either. And the one thing to tell people, you know, our listeners, and I'm I'm sure you talk to people about this all the time, is there's no rhyme or reason as to who's going to be affected by, who's going to get, I say, Alzheimer's. No, well, nobody really knows. I mean, I guess you know they're looking at the genes and that potential that what can be triggered in the gene makeup in the DNA, but nobody really knows. There's, you know, am I right or am I wrong? No, you're right. The only thing that they do know is early onset Alzheimer's tends to run in families. So mm-hmm. if you have five siblings and they all had Alzheimer's before they were sixty, and you're mm-hmm. fifty-two your chances are higher than most other people. Mm-hmm. But there's a very famous family on the Cape, the Noonans. I mean, they've been on national news a bunch of times. There were uh, multiple kids. Mm-hmm. Um, both parents had Alzheimer's, I think, before they were 60. And each kid, by the time they were 50, either were diagnosed or were, were showing symptoms. And wow. I mean, the one that was left that... Who's, I won't say her name, but uh, the one who had not yet been diagnosed or showed symptoms said, you know, I wake up every morning thinking, is today, today going to be the day? Right, right, right. And there's no way to know. I mean, there's no way to say that it will happen or not. Right, she and made, even worse, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Right. Even if you know. Right, right. And then there, there it is. Right, and there it is. You're just waiting. Yeah, yeah. So... I had this one question I want. What was one of your most frustrating cases? Do you have most, one? That one that you, yeah. Oh, I have lots. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's rarely the fault of the person. It's usually the fault of the people around them. Um, let me think of one of the worst. Um, worse in, in terms for hard for me or worse in terms of uh, just heartbreaking? I Aren't guess. one that... I guess they're both. I mean, if you could put one together. Yeah, that was maybe hard that you just couldn't make headway on, and, you know, it was just hard to watch, I guess. That's what yeah, would be right. frustrating. Uh, yeah. Sometimes yeah. when the person afflicted is extraordinarily smart and his his function at an extraordinarily high level, um, 
their decline, although it's 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 pronounced the people who knew them, when they go running around on the street, you know, they still can you know, speak in full sentences and their verbal acuity is not all that much diminished. They may be repetitive. And then one has all these people saying, This is a real situation. Um there's nothing wrong with him. I don't know what what his wife's talking about. There's nothing wrong with him. He's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And the wife, the husband was a, they both were physicians actually. And what no one realized, yeah, if he went to a party, he could talk about almost anything and be perfectly on the money. Mm-hmm. What no one realized is when he went home, mm-hmm. he couldn't figure out how to, you know, put his clothes on. Mm-hmm. He, right. he, his, his, um, the mundane skills were, had just melted away. Because they were they were unimportant to him all along. I mean, he dressed himself, but I mean, he didn't care that he dressed himself. He, what he cared about was that he had profound thoughts, and he continued to have the profound thoughts far longer than he was. I mean, to the point where he was incontinent, and he's you know. And if someone dressed him up and propped him up, he could you know give a lecture on neuroscience. Uh, and I couldn't, <laughs> um, but uh, or not as well as he could. And I, that was very frustrating because uh, although the two of them, the husband and the wife, were pretty much okay. Well, they weren't okay is wrong, but I mean, they understood. Um, no one around them, and in, including their kids who were at a distance, I don't see why everybody's making such a big deal about it. There's nothing really wrong with him. Right. And right. that went on and on for years. And his progression was very, very slow. Um, and unless you were at home with him for a long period of time, you didn't notice anything was wrong. One didn't notice anything was wrong. I wouldn't have either if I hadn't been up close and, you know, in their face, in his face. Um, that was very frustrating because, he, you know, he'd get his wife would help him get dressed. He'd go to the, his doctor. He'd, you know, give the doctor a lecture on something medical, which was usually right on. And uh, it was right. almost funny. <laughs> But did the do- I mean, did the doctor get it? No. The doctor now? Yeah. No. Yeah, that's, that's a big a problem that I find. Yeah, I, I find that doctors often don't. You know, uh, patients. I saw this with my mother-in-law. You know, she would just for and other clients that I have um, that snapshot of time where they can just pull it together. Yeah, and, and the other thing that's I think so paradoxical is our medical system is wired. You you go to the hospital to see the doctor in Boston, certainly, most of the time. Um, so there's someone who dress, helps you dress, helps you get ready, um, cues you through everything. You go to the doctor, you look fine. You, you may not look fine any other day, but you look fine that day. You're clean. You're well-groomed. Um, the doctor asks you a bunch of superficial questions, which you're able to answer, and they say you're fine. Then you mm-hmm. go home and you don't bathe for three more months, and you know, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and no one pays that much attention because there's no occasion and then three months later, you go back to another doctor, and someone gets you all ready, and six people are over, you know, and, oh, she's fine. And I don't think it's the fault of necessarily each individual doctor. They only they have the ten minutes they have. What can they really figure out? Right. And, but it's like the, one of the most frustrating things for families. Right. You know, and some people like us, because we know what's going yeah. on. And if, no, yeah. and if the doctors don't listen to us or the families. Yeah, right, right. Then we just continue on this road until something major happens, and you know you end up in the hospital and you call the primary and you say, "This is what happened." Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I hope they do okay. You know, like, ah, you could have helped. You could have invoked the healthcare proxy. Right, right. <laughs> Which I finally, I the other way, you know, speaking of that recently. Um, I've been trying to get this one fan, this doctor, to invoke the healthcare proxy because the client I had, you know, early onset Alzheimer's or dementia. You know, couldn't remember anything, forgot where everything was. Was accusing every you know people of having affairs with their son, and and uh, finally when we got down to the need for a feeding tube and the doctors were asking her for consent she had no idea what i i finally pulled the son aside and i said after they leave this you know you sign all the consents i said after you leave go in and say to her 
ask her to ask the doctor to invoke the health care proxy because she was that cognitive. Her cognition was good enough that she could ask. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did. And she did it. I mean, Amazing. I stayed out of the room. And, it, you know, if you can get someone at the right time, they know they're sick, they know they can't handle it, you know, and you're not trying to badger them, but I knew the son had to now make all the health care decisions because she thought, oh, they're going to put this tube in for a little bit, and then they're going to take it out. Yeah, well, I'll be fine. it's not coming out. Yeah, it's all be fine. I'll go home. I'll, But it's not going to be fine. It's never coming out. You right, know, that's and that's the, the, the delusion and the illusion of health care in many ways, is that an 85-year-old with huge cognitive impairments, I mean, people make their own choices, and I'm not trying to tell people what the choice they need to make. But a person who's always said, I don't want to be kept alive on machines, or I don't want extraordinary measures to keep me alive, is then sort of, the fa- their family is sort of blackmailed in, the, in a certain way into doing it, because they're made to feel like they're killing their relative by not treating X, Y, Z, when in fact, the person doesn't want to, is dying to die. Right, right, right. Let me go. Right, right. <laughs> Please, let me go. <laughs> Although, and I mean, there's no one who gets away without dying. If there is, <laughs> I haven't met them yet. I, I mean, know, part of life, everybody dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, this yeah. sort of notion we have, well, Western culture, particularly the United States, has that, you know, oh, well, my mother's 99 and still healthy, and I hope she has 20 more years. I mean, hello. The body is not designed to last that long. No, and she wouldn't be happy in the body for another 20 years. That's the other thing. You know, we're coming down. We only got about about three and a half minutes left here. And I just, I always like to ask my guests at the end. And I have to say it's been a wonderful conversation. And I know that what you've talked about and the information you've given has been so helpful. It's been helpful for me. Um, Why don't, you know, in the... Three minutes or you know, two minutes or less. What's your sage advice on working with, you know, helping people navigate this dementia world? You know, what? Just some quick. And I know you got some good quips here. You'll be able to. Well, <laughs> uh, respect authority, but don't feel that you have to kowtow to it. Uh-huh. Um. Just because someone is, you know, the head of blah, blah, department in, in, in some fancy hospital doesn't mean they know anything or everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes you have to reduce yourself and the person you're, car- you're caring about to their essence and figure out, you know, what is their, I mean, for lack of a better word, you know, what what's, what's the spiritual, soulful, I don't even know the right word, to mm-hmm. wish that they would have. Not what the, it's not necessarily what they're saying. It's what you know they'd want. And it's very hard to let people go. I understand that. And it's hard. It's no easier for me either. But, I mean, life always ends in death. Mm-hmm. And I think our goal, or my goal at least, is always to you know maximize happiness and safety in equal proportions. But to have someone safe and miserable is is horrible. And to have someone... You know, happy and, I mean, the opposite, safe, I mean, unsafe and happy is not good either. So it's a de- very delicate balance, but I think we need to respect respect people's autonomy and the autonomy of their decisions, but not necessarily the autonomy of their decision that they've made after they've become impaired. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Because if you ask, you know, someone who's really three sheets to the wind, you know, what do you want? and you're asking them an existential kind of question, and they say ice cream. I mean, they want ice cream. I don't doubt that. <laughs> Give them ice cream. But that's not the answer to the existential question. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, Howard, maybe yes. it is. <laughs> maybe we're missing it. Oh, I haven't, okay, well, I sit corrected. <laughs> I don't know, but hey. <laughs> it may be. I, you know, we spend our whole lives worrying about how much ice cream we eat, you know, especially as women, you know, all, you know, all our dieting and everything. Maybe it is. Maybe, Maybe it is. Yeah. Okay, on that right. note, I want to thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Ari. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Yes, and, and I will have you on again sometime because you have so many great stories and we didn't even touch the surface. All right, so, well, anytime you. you want, I'm here. Okay. Not anytime, almost anytime. 
Okay. I'll be busy eating ice cream in between. All right, good. Have some for me, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye, Ari. so much. Bye-bye. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye. Well, that was Howard Block, and I know that if you've listened to this, this has been a great, great um, uh, show. Uh, I think that he's given us a lot of information on the way to deal with Alzheimer's. So thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions, email me at uh, heal, H-E-A-L, at healthcarewhisperer.com. Thank you.